John chapter 1. Last week, I began working through what I planned to be the next uh, verse-by-verse series, the Gospel of John. For those that were not with us um, and did not listen to the message, which I encourage you and want to remind you that the messages are available online, especially when we're going through a new series. Um, You know, I'm OCD. I like to, I can't skip verses when I'm going through a book. It, It gives me anxiety. Um, maybe you can sleep at night skipping a sermon here or there, but I just want to encourage, you know, there's, um, to keep up with where we're going. You can get those online. I do intend to take a slightly different approach to this book than I did with Galatians and, and particularly with Ephesians. We went quite slow and um, more teaching focused on the word itself. Um, I, but I, I want to weave this into the the theme of spiritual maturity, which we're going through as a church for 23. And how do we do that with a verse-by-verse study? Well, what the Holy Spirit gave to me was by going through the life of Christ and how can we apply the scriptures to our lives and live like he did. And so, yes, from week to week, obviously there's going to be some variance in the approach that I take, but my overall goal is to make this an application. How can we look at the, the life of Christ Jesus and apply these things and do the things that he did to challenge us, to grow in our faith, to grow up to a mature man, which Brother Curtis has been teaching on. Last week we discussed the author, the theme, the purpose of the book. Does anyone remember what the theme verse is? John chapter 20, remember verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, and that by believing in him you may have life in his name. Now, we discussed how Jesus was the Word, Jesus was also light. And these are the two themes that John's going to bring out throughout this gospel. And then we got into some verses about dwelt among us, or literally Jesus tabernacled among us. In other words, there's this connection between Christ Jesus and the Old Testament, this worship style, and Him wanting to dwell us. He descended upon us upon earth, and this is the picture that God wanted us to see made manifest. He, he wanted us to understand it in the Old Testament, well, the Jews to understand it in the Old Testament, and now we got to realize it. That's where the turning point in history was. Our calendars are built around it, B.C. and A.D., in the year of our Lord. The Lord arrives, and this is when everything changed. This is when everything changed for us. And so John describes his birth. That's what it means to become flesh. He's tabernacled with us. And now, this week, we're going to fast-forward some 30-odd verses 30-odd years, excuse me, from Jesus' birth to his baptism. We're going to be about down to verse 30 today. We're going to cover a lot of territory. 30 verses, 30 years. John's really moving along in Jesus' life. I'm sure there are some things that we could learn from his childhood. The truth is we don't have a whole lot recorded in his childhood. We know he went to Jerusalem. We know he went out to the wilderness. He gets baptized and basically starts his ministry. That's about all we know about Jesus. But this is what John thinks is important. Birth baptism. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. Open it to us this morning. Holy Spirit, teach me, teach us, Father, that we would have your words, that we would be more like Christ Jesus. We would grow up into that mature man, that perfect man, and imitate Christ. Let us feast and feed on your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to start in verse 19. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent him sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, that, what then, are you Elijah? 
And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet had said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is the testimony of John 19. This is John the Baptist. Your Honor, I would like to call my first witness to the stand. John the Baptist. John is building a case that Jesus is the Messiah. These things are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name you might have eternal life. Your Honor, I would like to call John. He's giving an account of the things that pertain to the life of Christ that prove that he is Jesus. And this is what is important here, and I don't want you to miss this. We're going to come back to this. We're probably going to get to this a little bit more next week as well. Baptism is included by John as something that proves he is Christ. There's an importance about baptism, water baptism. You see, some of these important religious people, they were Levites, they were priests, they were sent by the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, to inquire about who John the Baptist was, to ask if he really was the Messiah. Now, it, it doesn't explicitly say that, but it's clear that it's implied given John's response. He first says, I am not the Christ. Now, I just want to pause here because I had a question about this last week in case anyone has this same question. I want to take a minute to talk about Jesus in the name of Jesus so that everyone is on the same page about Jesus. Perhaps you'll learn something here this morning. Messiah means what? Does anyone know? Anointed one. Messiah means anointed one. That's it. You can write that down. You might need to know that right in the margin of your Bible if you want. In Hebrew, that word is Mashiach. It is anointed one. That's what it means. When you translate Mashiach into, from Hebrew into Greek, you get the word Christos. When you translate Christ into English, you get Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? Jesus, Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, means Jesus, the Anointed One. Jesus has a name as well. Every name has a meaning in Hebrew. It means Yahweh saves or Yahweh heals. So Jesus, the Messiah, is Yahweh heals. This is the Anointed One. Christ, Messiah, Mashiach is a title. It's not his last name. Now, if you put all of these things together, what you get in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is Jesus' name in Hebrew, Hamashiach. That's how you would say Jesus the Christ or Jesus the Messiah. Yeshua Hamashiach. Now, we transliterate, not translate. Translate is putting a word from one language to another word, to, an, to your own language. Transliteration is when you take primarily names 
and you use it phonetically, transfer it to another language. For instance, how many of you ever heard a Spanish advertisement? Dr. Pepper, United States. There's certain words that they keep, and oftentimes they're names, and they pronounce them the same way that we pronounce them. That's what's going on. Yeshua, to the Greek, came out as Jesus. To us, we got Jesus. It's a transliteration of the name. You can ask Chi Mei about this. How would you say Eric in Chinese? You know, it would be, you would try their best to pronounce it, but they wouldn't have the alphabet to write it down the exact same way. We have, you know, 26 letters in our alphabet. And so when they put it in their alphabet, it might come out a little bit different. Each language has different sounds. Hebrew, very guttural. <laughs> you know, they got these hakanalugis in the back. Kind of gross, right? Well, that's just the way it sounds. You go listen to somebody speak Hebrew, it's, it's a very <laughs> sound. Mashiach, Makayahu. That's Malachi's middle name, Caleb's middle name. Okay, so in Hebrew, just to bring it full circle, it's Yeshua HaMashiach, which means Jesus the Anointed One. In Greek, in Greek it would be Jesus Christos. Same thing, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. In English, we say Jesus Christ. They all mean the same thing. That's Jesus' name. Just wanted to take an aside and clear that up. I'm sure not only one person had that question. All right, so these leaders, they come to him, and they say, Are you the Christ, the Messiah, the Mashiach? And John says, I am not the Christ. So they ask him, Well, then are you Elijah? Again, he declines to be associated with Elijah. I want to pause here for any of you Bible scholars because there's an interesting verse that ties into this. John declines being associated with Elijah. Yet if you read the other Gospels, Jesus calls or refers to John the Baptist as Elijah. Matthew chapter 11. He says, if you are willing to accept it, John is the Elijah who was to come. Now, is there a contradiction in Scripture? Well, as with many Scriptures, there are a variety of theories which try to explain this away. Personally, I don't see it as very complicated because Jesus, we've got to look at the perspective of, of who is doing the talking. One is Jesus talking about another person. The other is John talking about himself. And I think the key here is about humility. You see, in the account of Matthew, it is Jesus that is bestowing the honor on John the Baptist. He's saying he's functioning as Elijah the prophet. But John the Baptist, out of hu humility, was rejecting this title of honor by, in his humility. And I believe that the, both of these statements can be true. For instance, I might ask uh, who, I might ask Alan uh, Brown, who's the, the, the best naval designer and professor in all the land? And he might politely and humbly say, well, not me. He might point to someone else. But if I went and talked to some of his colleagues at Virginia Tech, they might say, oh, well, he's, look at all these titles and these accolades that he's got. And this is, I think, what's going on is, is Jesus is, he's associating John with this is the one who's prophesied of. He fulfilled that function, and John, yet in his humility, did not believe it and did not see it about himself. He was more interested in giving glory to the Father. 
And so they ask him this other question. They say, thirdly, well, then are you a prophet? And that prophet is talking about Moses. And John simply says, no. Now, if you notice the sequence of this line of questioning, he says he's getting more and more curt. I am not the Christ. I am not. No. He's clearly trying to put glory back on Christ. And so I want to ask you, when you're serving Christ Jesus, when you're doing something that he has called you to do, much like John has been, this is, he's been set aside at his birth. This was prophesied over him before he was born. How good, at you are, how good are you at keeping attention off of yourself? And this is a hard thing, right? We don't want to be proud. and We don't want to bring attention to ourselves. Yet we want to light, let our light shine before men that they may see our Father who's in heaven and glorify Him. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. As Christians, we have a responsibility to remain humble. Taking a little credit, taking a little glory, is never a good thing. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says, All of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility is the absence of feelings of superiority of being better than someone else. It's like lowering yourself in relation to them. And so someone with humility tends to esteem others as better themselves, and they put their interests first. And I believe that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. He's not, you know, saying, well, I refuse to believe that I'm the one that's fulfilling those shoes. He is simply putting it back on the Christ and saying, well, let's just focus on Jesus. I'm not interested in, in what I'm going to do in my life. I'm just on a mission because God sent me to do this. And I think we have something that we can learn from that. John understood the significance of the Messiah. He said, whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Not so much he's denying being Elijah, it's that he does not see himself as significant when he compares himself to Christ Jesus. Now, we aren't even to Jesus' life yet. The first thing we ought to take note as believers is that, I said, we need to be humble. We need to understand and grow in humility. Anytime you take an attaboy, take a little credit, all you're doing is taking a little glory from Jesus. Like in the grand scheme of things, do we really have anything to brag about? I mean, we aren't, we aren't worth anything apart from Christ Jesus, are we? All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Why are we, you know, patting ourselves on the back? Like we're so good, we're so smart, we've done so many great things. No. For those that are in Christ, we understand this, right? So we're spiritualized, but this is, who he's, this is what we're talking to. We're talking about how do we apply these words of the Gospel of John to the lives of believers? How do we grow in this? Well, there, there's a point that we need to understand and remember is that as now converts in Christ Jesus, there is no room in our lives to take any credit or glory for anything that we've done because it's all about Him. It's all about Jesus working in and through our lives. Yeah, we're favored, we're blessed, we're his child. Oh, God loves us, sure. Now that you're in Christ, we give him glory. We magnify him. We don't think too highly of ourselves. 
So many Christian leaders, you know, they become arrogant, they fall from grace, they get popular, they write a book, they do this, that, and the other, whatever. And how many of them end so poorly? We need to guard our hearts against pride and arrogance, taking vainglory. Now back to John the Baptist. That was a, too, too long of an aside, sorry. So the leaders ask him this fourth question. Well, then who are you? We've got to have an answer. We were sent by the Pharisees. We want to know who you are. I just, I wonder, I kind of wonder what would have happened if he said, yeah, I'm, I'm Moses, I'm Elijah, I'm the Messiah. You know, they, they were looking for the Messiah, but it turns out they weren't really ready for the Messiah yet, were they? Pharisees were already stirring up problems. And John says, well, I'm the man who's come to announce the one that you're looking for. So John responds, you know, I don't even know what he looks like. I wouldn't have recognized him except for the dove was descending. I only knew him. In other words, I I was looking for him, but I only recognized him because God fulfilled his word. Sometimes God's going to send you out on a mission and you're not going to have all the answers. You're not going to have all of the things that you need. You're not going to have all the clear instructions. He says, this is what I want you to look for. This is what I want you to do. And all you have to do is go out and obey. And he's going to give you the next step. He's going to give you a little bit more. I want you to go pray. You know, there's this interesting exercise that some people out in Redding, California do. Um, well, they have a name for that little prayer thing they do. What's it called? Treasure hunting, yeah. So they get in the circle and, well, it doesn't have to be a circle, I guess. You can sit however you want. Some people get together. A circle's figure of speech. We know that. <laughs> they get together in a circle, and a bunch of people are praying. They're praying in the Spirit, and nobody's talking. They're just praying for a while and asking the Lord, Lord, what do you want to show us? What are we going to do today? And, you know, somebody will get a picture of something. They specifically, are, they're forcing themselves to try and obey and learn to hear God's voice. And somebody will get a picture of, like, a, a red scarf. Another person will picture a cane. Another person will picture a bench. And so they'll go out looking for these things, and they'll find a person sitting on a bench with a cane and a red scarf. And they'll say, oh, God wants us to go pray for this person. They don't have any more instruction. And it's cool. You know, God doesn't have to do this. He doesn't, sometimes we just start eating too many tacos. We've got to be careful here. But I think what is really cool is it's forcing people to try and hear and listen to the Holy Spirit's voice. Sometimes you get nothing. Most of the time, probably people get nothing. But they go up to this person, they approach him, and they just start to have a conversation. Oh, can we pray for you? And they don't tell them all of that creepy, weird stuff, right? Might be a turnoff. But sometimes we don't have the instructions. And so, so John says, I, I know that I'm supposed to be doing this, but I don't even know what the next step is. All I know is I'm looking for this dove to be coming up and down. And, well, sure enough, God fulfills his word. So they ask him while they're waiting for this to happen, you know, it's the day before, he says, well, what are you doing here? What's, up, what's about all this water? If you're, not, if you're none of these people, John, what are you doing? Oh, well, I'm preparing people's hearts for them. I'm preparing their hearts to receive this Messiah. I'm just cleansing these people. Now, you remember when I talked about the mikvah of the Hebrews chapter 6 teaching about washings. We went through that Hebrews 6, you remember that? I think back in February or March. The mikvah was this Hebrew uh, washing pool, basically. The Jews were very accustomed to baptism. They were very accustomed to cleansing. This was something that they had to do religiously, literally religiously. They had requirements about, you know, after uh, certain 
acts with a spouse or, or um, certain deeds, uh, things they'd have to do as cleanse, certain sins they'd have to go out and get cleansed in this mikvah, special washing thing, and there was all sorts of rules about these washings. So they were accustomed to baptism. You can go back and listen to that. I had a whole teaching on it if you want. But this is what John was doing. He was acting as a priest prophet in washing these people from their sins of repentance, preparing them for the Christ who is to come, the Messiah. By washing them beyond the River Jordan. And this location is significant because most commentators think that it's a foreshadowing of salvation to the Gentiles. That same passage that John himself is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 about preparing the way from the Lord. If you read on down in verse 5, I believe, of the same chapter, it says, Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and in all flesh will see His glory. All flesh. How much flesh? All. That includes the Gentiles. So this is a foreshadowing. And the territory for the Jews was up to the river Jordan, and beyond the Jordan was considered the wilderness. Let's not forget that John the Baptist was a man of the wilderness. He was, he was, a, he was a hairy man. He was a honey-eaten wild donkey of a man. He was out there in the wild doing wild stuff. But that's where he was, baptizing people in repenting, or, uh, for repentance. So these religious leaders were looking for the Messiah. What are you doing way out here, John? Bear in mind the context. Perhaps some of them, not even Jewish people. Interesting to think about. Beyond the River Jordan. I wonder if you are ready and willing to do something out of the ordinary. I mean, it's nice to imagine that we would listen to God and baptize people on the other side of the river. But when it really comes down to it, I wonder if we would be actually willing to break free from what is considered normal. For instance, this morning, we're singing Deep Cries Out. I wasn't looking around the room. I'm not judging you. Don't feel like I'm talking to you. I'm just wondering, do you feel awkward about jumping in the river, dancing in the river, going to the left and the right, shouting in the river? Why? Why? Is it because of, you know, your age? I'm not comfortable. I might break a bone. Okay, that's one thing, right? If you're genuinely in danger, <laughs> you know, all right, well, maybe you should just go on and break the bone and we'll just lay hands on you afterwards. <laughs> I don't know. But, but I think oftentimes we're embarrassed about what other people are to think. We have this kind of normalcy. We've become kind of complacent in worship. Well, worship, we grew up in worship, was, you know, like this. Or maybe you were in a free church and you were allowed to raise your hands to like this point. You know, some of you might have been a little crazy. You were like way up in here, but... What is normal? And are you willing to go beyond that if God puts it on your heart, if the Holy Spirit's stirring your midst? John, I want you to go baptize on the other side of the river. I want you to go beyond the river of Jordan. I want you to go get those people that are looking for the Messiah. Would we be willing to go outside of, of what we perceive as normal and, ex, you know, what, the things that, sometimes we sort of help God out, don't we? We think we're doing good. Eric, I want you to go pray for somebody. All right, I'm looking for somebody who's really sick. Ah, that person's in a wheelchair. Well, maybe he, didn't, maybe he wants you to pray for him, and it's not wrong to pray for him. But we sort of help out God, don't we? Like, oh, I'm looking for a sick person. Well, 
maybe he just wanted you to pray for that healthy person. We have to be careful to listen to the Holy Spirit and not project what we're comfortable doing because that's what snuck into the church. Oh, we have a prescribed formula of how we are to worship. We come in, we find a seat, we put our stuff down, we sit near our seat. God forbid we step forward and put our hands up and start moving around all crazy and worshiping. Don't you ever think about shouting in church because a whole bunch of people are going to think you're crazy. They might hear your voice. How many of you have ever, ever been to a funeral where somebody died prematurely? What's kept you from praying for their resurrection? Did you ever consider that as a possibility? Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. You remember Luke? Cast out demons, cleanse the lepers, heal the sick, but it also says raise the Now, you know, we need to be mindful and gentle. I'm not telling you to walk up into the funeral home and start casting out demons. And <laughs> I mean, if God tells you to do it, go for it. I'm right behind you, about 100 feet behind you. But <laughs> <laughs> my point is we have customs and traditions and etiquette and expectations. And I just wonder if we ever let those things get in the way from the job that God has assigned us to do. John didn't baptize for his own glory. He, he did it as an assignment so that Christ would receive glory. You don't, in the same way, we don't, we don't pray for someone's resurrection for our own glory. Oh, look what I did. No, absolutely not. It's so that God could receive it. And I, I wonder, how many times have we missed opportunities? Can you imagine the testimony that would come out of McCoy Funeral Home if we walked in there? and prayed over a child that had prematurely died. God raised them up. No church name, no names attached to it or anything. Child raised. The dead child lives. Can you imagine the testimony and the glory to God? Oh, when we have heaven's eyes. I like to imagine that we would be more obedient if we could just see what God wants to do through us, I wonder if it would encourage us to go do those things. I hope that we're willing to go beyond the Jordan to baptize the unclean if the Holy Spirit ever leads us to. Verse 29, the next day. Now this is significant because John is responding to these questions that we just went over. And just watch what happens on this next day. Some commentators think that he's kind of hailing back to Genesis 1. We talked about that last week in the beginning. There's this creation account. Verse 29 is the first one we come to the next day. Verse 35 also says the next day. Verse 43, if you skip on down to the chapter, it says the next day. And then you see at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, the third day. So he's describing this whole week-long event type thing. Well, I don't know for sure, but it's an interesting thing for you to think about. But here we go. We've arrived at perhaps the most important verse in the entire chapter. I don't know where all of you are in your walk with Christ, but I think we could use a little reminder from time to time about salvation. You say, well, pastor, we just had one last week. We had a great salvation message. Yeah, well, get used to it because that's what the gospel of John is all about. 
about salvation. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Now let's read the verse, verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are few titles of Jesus, if any, that are more spectacular. The Lamb. God's Lamb. Not just any lamb, this particular lamb can take away sins. Not a few sins, not many sins, the sins of the world. That's big. This is enormous, really. In the Old Testament, there was different kinds of animals that were offered for sacrifices. There were doves, there was goats, there was bulls, there were rams, there was this burnt offering, and they also had this grain offering, and there was a drink offering and a peace offering, and these were all voluntary. These were offerings. They would bring animals up to the priests, and they would sacrifice them in a form of worship. It is an offering up to God. And then there was also the sin offering, which was to atone for sin. But a lamb was not used for the sin offering. Lastly was a trespass offering, which is different and distinct from a sin offering. These were these involuntary sins, you know, these, these sins of omission, these sins of things that you did uh, unintentionally, and that's what a trespass offering was for, but that was also not used specifically for a lamb, so I don't want to make too much of a connection, but I want you just to hear about what it was for. There's a nice fitting parallel there because it's about healing and forgiving. It was this, this trespass offering was to bring healing and forgiveness for those unintentional sins, and it's nice to make this parallel, but the truth is that a ram was used, specifically a ram, which is not a lamb. Older male lamb, sheep, ram. But there is another instance in the Old Testament in which lambs were used in sacrifice. Does anyone remember? Don't be shy. The Passover. There's a parallel that we ought to make, and I believe John the Baptist or John is writing about, John the Baptist understood, is about the Passover. All the way back in Egypt, Israel was told to prepare a lamb for this tenth and final plague. Now, this word lamb in Hebrew specifically means kid or lamb. In English, we distinguish the two words. We say sheep or goat. We put them both together. In, in Hebrew, they were both put together. A goat offspring and a sheep's offspring were both called lambs in Hebrew. But they were encouraged to go get, they were not encouraged, they were told directly to get a lamb, spread blood on the doorpost with, do you remember which branch? Hyssop. Well, that's oddly specific. What on earth? and eat dinner together while God brings judgment on the people who have not made a blood provision over their household. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, 
while they took this very meal in remembrance of Yahweh delivering Israel up out of slavery of sin, a picture of sin, delivering him, them from slavery out of Pharaoh, after Jesus calls himself the door and spills his blood for us, he takes up wine on the cross by a branch of hyssop. I mean, the parallels are just too much. John is trying to teach. He's saying that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's saying, listen, Jews, you have memorialized our deliverance out of Egypt. You eat, you sacrifice in remembrance of what God has done for our ancestors before. But you've missed why God did all of that to begin with. Well, Jesus is the very lamb of protection for us. He died a perfect spotless lamb so that you could cover your household in his very blood so that the angel of death would pass right on over your household. Listen, you leaders, you're looking for the Messiah. Behold, look, here he is. He's come not to deliver you from the Romans. He's come to deliver you from the death angel. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Levites, the priests, would have understood this. This isn't something that John just made up. It's a title that God has given him to say. He put it on his heart. John was filled with the Spirit in his mother's womb. And so if you look back through the Bible, what you see is this offering of this lamb was always God's requirement for salvation. There were different animals that were used for atonement of sins. But there's this picture repeated over and over again of lamb and salvation, sacrifice and salvation. The first one, we see one sheep for one person. Abraham takes up Isaac on the mount, Mount Moriah, right? Dad, where's the lamb? The Lord himself will provide. Yahweh Yireh. And what does God provide? There was a ram caught in the thicket in his horns. So they sacrificed one animal for one person. Now you fast forward to Egypt. What do we see here? We see God's expanding his provision of salvation. One lamb is shared among the whole family. And if the family was too small because there would be no wasting of it, you would get together two smaller families and they would eat all of the meat together. So one animal was shared over a household or a few friends and family. Now you fast forward to the Levitical law, and what you see is that one animal was now to atone for the sins of the whole nation of people for one year. But behold, the Lamb of God, who took away all of the sins of the whole world one time. Hebrews 10, 11, and 12 says, Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. See, John had gotten the gravity of the situation. I wonder if you do. Beloved, behold this morning the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 